Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So the Persian Gulf into the Strait of Hormuz, into the Gulf of Amman. And it's in the Gulf of Amman going into the Strait of Hormuz that we've heard from two tankers who were reportedly damaged in a suspected attack just in the Gulf of Amman, just weeks after a previous incident in the region. One of the owners, so we've got a Japanese owner of one of these vessels, telling local media it had been hit by a shell. The second tanker, this tanker is owned by Norway's Frontline, suffered three detonations. This is according to the Norway Maritime Authority. Both ships have been evacuated. Crewed yesterday at a really rough session, so we bounced aggressively off a five-month low this morning, up around about three percentage points on both Brent and WTI. To get some more insight and clarity as to what is happening in the region, I want to bring in from Dubai, Anthony DePaola, Bloomberg Middle East Energy Markets reporter. Anthony, good morning to you, sir. Just walk us through what we know so far and what we're learning as the hours progress. Good morning to you there. Uh, well, what we're really looking to learn still is um, what the exact cause of these attacks was. Uh, we, we don't know in the case of either ships, there were explosions, there were fires on both ships, but we don't know uh, what caused those. And, and then we will be looking for some uh, responsibility. Um, the attacks that you mentioned uh, that took place in the port of Fujairah just last month, um, you, people there... <coughs> The U.S., the Saudis, pointed the figure at uh, finger at uh, Iran. Uh, the UAE itself hasn't yet assigned blame. They said it was a state actor involved. Uh, so we'll be looking to see uh, where the blame is pointed here. Uh, we do know that the the crews have been taken off those vessels. Um, there are, uh, as, as you've mentioned, uh, rescue and, um, and and retrieval operations uh, going on there to try to yeah. uh, secure these vessels. And 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 luckily the, the crews are safe. But we will be seeing a lot of uh, additional mayhem in the markets, uh, both oil and shipping as we go forward and, and, and see what the, the fallout from this is. In your world, there's Abu Dhabi, and then you go up to Dubai, and then you go up to Ras al Kamea, if I'm pronouncing that right. How far or close emotionally is the Strait of Hormuz for the United Arab Emirates and for that matter for all the oil producers? Is this like an event right next door, or is it removed no, this is this is clearly next door. Uh, Fujairah, the port where the attacks took place last month, is an hour by car from Dubai, uh, just cutting across the mountains. Uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Ras Al Khaimah—they're all uh, on the coast there. Uh, you didn't mention one of the one of the other Emirates, Sharjah. Uh, that's one of the Emirates that had uh, several islands uh, taken by Iran uh, just when the UAE declared independence in 1971. Uh, it, it was that that weekend that that the UAE formed as a country, and Iran seized uh, three islands in the Gulf. So. So, uh, you know, these tensions go, go way back, uh, and they are coming back. But this is really um, right in this neighborhood, right here. Uh, the, you mentioned one of the tankers had uh, filled up in, in Abu Dhabi in the port of Ruiz. The other tanker uh, co-loaded a cargo of methanol, that's another oil product, uh, in uh, Qatar and then went to Saudi Arabia. So the last ports of, call, ports of call for these two vessels were Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, and they were hit just outside the Strait of Hormuz, uh, the choke point that leads into the Persian Gulf. Anthony, great to catch up with you this morning to get some more insight on this. That's Anthony DePaolo there, Bloomberg's Middle East Energy Markets reporter, joining us out of Dubai.
chat to Jason Gamble now, Jeffrey's Energy Research Analyst. He joins us out of the City of London. Jason, good day to you. Let's talk about the price action. This kind of incident took place a number of weeks ago. Crude rolled over by what, 10 11% since then? How do you frame this just in terms of the price action in crude right now, Jason? Jonathan, I think we have a real tug of war between uh, extreme concerns around the demand side and uh, that's been corroborated by uh, large inventory builds in the U.S. relative to all these potential uh, disruptions to supply. You know, we know that the, uh, the Iranian sanctions are starting to really bite into their exports even more. We know Venezuelan exports are down. I would have thought that the supply side concerns would have been really driving the price action. I've been dead wrong. It's really been more the concerns on the demand side. So uh, when you have these two factors that are both potentially extreme, that's what leads to this high volatility in price. Let me cut to the chase. We've got high volatility in price, but I got a vector down. Many others are telling us stability or vector down in oil price. Is this tanker attack an opportunity to short the market? Well, Tom, I, I think the other big event that is coming up is the uh, the OPEC Plus meeting, which could be on June 25th. It could be delayed into July. I think that mm. that is uh, a relatively critical event. I, I would see that as an event that probably has more downside than upside to it, uh, simply because I think the market's already pricing in right. an extension of cuts into the back half. Uh, so, you know, that, that might actually be a real catalyst if you, if you want to short the market. And I want to explain that Mr. Gamble, my question is what we call rude. And Mr. Gamble answered that question, John, in a graceful way, as any gentleman from the sell side would. And I do apologize for saying, should we short the market like in the next hour? Continue. It's great to have Jason with us because Jason doesn't just cover the commodity. He also covers the names, yeah. the energy producers. Yeah. So, yeah. Jason, talk to me about what on earth people should be doing right now. The companies that fall under your coverage because so many people have been burnt by the energy players as they start to see crude inflect higher. Well, you know, I think when it comes to actually investing in the equities, Jonathan, it's, an, it's important to remember that these companies have really restructured their businesses to be able to fund their capital and dividends down to 50 a barrel. Uh, we fit that's Brent. That is, uh, we are um, actually seeing pretty good valuation in these names. Uh, we believe that the market is now discounting, discounting about $51 oil into the price. They're, play, they're trading at a standard deviation below uh, their historic P.E. relative to the market. So I think there are good investment opportunities in the equities. I would say that if you think oil prices are going down, you would yeah. probably want to wait to put on those equity trades. But we think there's good value here. Jason, thank you for the briefing. Thanks, Jason, Jason. Gamble, Jeffries. Quickly, we had Paul Tudor Jones in yesterday, and Charles Cantor joins us from Newberger Berman. Farrell's going to bring him in and beat him to death because this is the global Wall Street discussion of the day. We're not going to talk about Whole Foods and Amazon. John, I can go to the Bloomberg and see that avocados are 2.4 standard deviations higher. Nobody cares. Nope. Let's talk about the courage in the market. I think it's really, really difficult right now on a sector basis to position your portfolio. And what I'd love to talk to you about, Charles, is the conversation I had yesterday with Henry people in advance and he said look if you want to strip strip out the trade story from your portfolio and focus on sensitives that are less focus on sectors that are less sensitive to trade 
you'll effectively end up exposing yourself to a really, really domestic cyclical portfolio and vice versa. If you try and strip out the cyclicality, you'll end up with a portfolio really, really exposed to trade. So on a sector basis, it's really tough right now, Charles. Yes, and it's it's a stock picker's dream right now, John. It's um, and 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 you see that in in the results of, of of just those that are focused on on the individual securities and 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 can manage and understand valuations and and, and volatility. You can't strip out global trade because because our companies thankfully have become global and they've taken their products to the global stage to grow their earnings and cash flow and so those moments where where people where the factors are driving the underlying securities becomes the golden age of of, of stock picking and for us we we fortunate because um, i i don't think of us as radioactive i think of us as as double active because we get to take advantage of that opportunity on on both sides of the book both being long and short and so we we love our opportunity set right now in 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 loving in 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 running a fundamentally driven long short equity strategy and and it's super exciting because the factor stuff um, is is breaking down and 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 the underlying security analysis is working again in a big way. So walk us through the process. Just help us understand a little bit how you're approaching these securities at the moment. Look, look, we've, uh, we own securities that went down 45% in, in the fourth quarter and went up 45% in the first quarter. And I'll tell you, nothing changed other than someone decided that was a factor they didn't want or it was a factor that they did want. And so on the long side of the book, it's all about understanding margin of safety and being an owner of businesses. And on the short side, it's, it's rapid right. fire, take advantage of the volatility, make, a, make 10 or 12% and move on. And, and, and stocks, stocks are reacting to new news um, and fundamentals and I think it'll be very interesting from here for the next couple of quarters because you know the stock market's rebounded five percent yes it's two percent off its high yes it's up a lot since since Christmas but 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 the fundamentals, I think, given the global trade, I think you'll see a, a weaker earnings outlook as the numbers come through, and that'll create more volatility as well. Tell us the physics of not the growth of revenues, the growth of operating income, the growth of free cash flow, but the persistency or inertial force of one of those given metrics. To me, I look at consumer stocks, what a valuation on their ability to do it every day. Look, on the consumer side, it, you have retailers out there that will re- remain nameless for now that are trading at three times earnings, three times EBITDA. Um, and, and the view there is Amazon and others um, w- are putting you out of business each and every day, and you have a real estate footprint that is way too large um, for the size of so the company. So do you own those? We would be very reluctant to own those, despite the valuation, because I think investing is about thinking about the future, not thinking about where we've come from. Um, and so it's, it's, the, the big debate right now is, is we are late cycle, and the question is, what do you want to own when you late cycle? What um, do you want to own, and, Charles? And, and I think my experience is, in a recession, the value stocks actually get murdered because they are the most cyclical and low PE becomes infinitive PE because the earnings evaporate. And, and, and I think we stay focused on those businesses that, because of their secular dynamics, can continue to grow. And revenue growth solves all other problems because with, it just does. And, and, and it, it, it allows you the flexibility to, 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 to ride through um, a cyclical slowdown. So you said it's the golden age for security selection, but you certainly wouldn't go as far as it's the time to begin picking up the value. 
I mean, you think it's dangerous to start going down the value? I, I wouldn't be going down the value chain. I would yeah. stay focused. I think you have to understand value and, and values in the eye of the beholder, of course. Um, um, I mean, look, on the other side of the equation, you have software, software companies that have unbelievably clear revenue growth prospects trading at 10, 11, 12 times revenue. I'm not sure I'd go there either. Um, and I think, I think the, the goal of us is, is to sit squarely in the middle. But we, we, we staying away from the cyclical stuff on the long side, much more likely to find that on the short side, um, just given where we are in, 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 in at, you know, at the back end, not the end of the cycle. I don't think we anywhere near the end of the cycle, but we're much closer to the end of the cycle than the beginning. And, and I think the debate we have at our firm is, will value work better than growth? And I think growth just works better because because despite low valuations, the earnings um, of a cyclical company evaporate um, in, in, in a downturn. Really smart, Charles, and great to see you, as always. That's Charles Cantor there, Newberger Berman. going to bring in Kathy Jones for Oh, us. okay, fine. I was going to bring her in, but please, I insist. Schwab Centre for Financial Research, Chief Fixed Income Strategist. Kathy, great to have you with us on the programme. Tom and I talking about the demand for sovereign paper is quite remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But, you know, when you think about it, there's just so little yield out there, particularly in sovereign paper, that um, if you're a pension fund, insurance company, sovereign wealth fund, you need, you need yeah. to buy something with yield and you're going to Go wherever, okay. you, wherever you can find it. Is dividend growth your new yield? Well, it's part of it. You know, when we talk to our end clients, what we talk about is, you know, getting yield in um, wherever you can get it right now, balancing that against the risk that you're taking. So, Kathy, let's talk about the risks. Nomura coming out with a really interesting survey, and it's from the team in Asia. So this is an Asian audience, so think about that. There's a bit of a regional bias here, but I still find it fascinating. The following quote, around 70% of the participants expect Trump policies to be the most important determinant of risk sentiment in the next three to six months, followed by China stimulus. Less than 10% viewed the US Fed as an important driver. Just 10% in the survey saw the Fed and Fed policy as the most important determinant of risk sentiment in the next three to six months. Kathy, what do you think about that? Well, I think they might be underestimating the influence of the Fed, but I do think you know it makes sense because the you know the administration's policies towards trade are really contributing to what's going on in the market. So if you look at what's slowing down manufacturing in the world, well, certainly a, con- a big contributor to that is this trade conflict, and what's weighing on sentiment in certain areas, you know, the trade conflict. So. To some extent, that makes sense, yeah. but I wouldn't underestimate the Fed's influence on the markets. If you did an efficient market analysis, let's say it's 60-40, 60-30-10 right now, what's your weighting to fixed income? It's actually, it actually well, it depends on the person, obviously, but it, you know, we're still pretty much in a 60-40 world because we're, we're relatively cautious about the equity market because of this uh, slowdown growth that we're anticipating. And so we're, we'd still be probably 60-40, maybe you know, 60-35-5 okay. in cash. So if I got this right, I mean, forget about the equity market, folks. Go look at the double-digit returns you've seen there. If I'm price up in fixed income, how do I lock in that gain and adjust to your new reality of equity caution? 
Yeah, so it's been a, you know, year to date has been fantastic in the fixed income market. So what do I do fantastic? Yeah, people don't realize how much uh, total return has gone up. Well, we think you you have to shift uh, up in credit quality. So high yields had a, a you know eight percent total return, I think, year to date on the index, eight or right. nine. That's sixteen percent yeah, a year, folks. Just for those keeping score at home. Yeah, we're not multiplying by two. Oh, well, so I can do that because it's showbiz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but our expectation is, you know, second half of the year at best, you probably earn the coupon. So yeah. you know, we shift up in credit quality here, and that allows right. you to lock in some of the gains that you might have gotten on the right. riskier parts of the and market. Kathy, for a more adult view of the fixed income market, I recommend the Real Yield Fridays, 1 p.m. on Bloomberg Television, because John Farrell doesn't multiply by two. Kathy was on it recently. <clears throat> oh, really? Yeah. A big fan of the I program. Appearance. Love, love having the, Kathy. Love, love the show. She had to hire an entourage just to look important. <laughs> the show's so amazing. So, so, Kathy, put some meat on that statement. Going up in quality, what does that actually mean? So that means if you're in, say, the corporate bond sector, we would limit the exposure in a high yield and in, even an in investment grade. We wouldn't get too concentrated at the lower tier, particularly the triple B area, which you know everybody knows has expanded in size and is now half of half the universe. So we try to work in some of those single A names a little higher, so that you're cushioned if we do hit. Um, a downturn in the economy, you don't want to have too much exposure to the, the weaker credits. Does this work both ways, Kathy? If you avoid the triple Bs in investment grade and avoid the triple Cs in, say, high yield, but you want the single A's in investment grade, do you want the double Bs in high yield or are you just avoiding high yield altogether? Um, you know, I don't know that you'd get a tremendous amount of safety in the double Bs. Um, if we go into a downturn, I think a high yield will probably all move together. So avoid some of these situations in the credit market it's in the sovereign market that i think we also need to have a conversation as well we've had a big move in 10 years in 30 years if you want to pick up some duration on the u.s side of things because you think that's going to be an effective hedge into a downturn given the move we've already had kathy does that make sense you know, you always need something because it's your single best. Treasuries tend to be your single best diversifier versus stocks. So if you're worried about the stock market and you want to hedge, you don't really have a lot of other options. But I would say, given the move that we've had a little bit, I'm a little reluctant to say now is the moment to add a lot of duration. You know, it was a, it was a great idea six months ago. Right now, I think we could probably bounce. Yeah. I think the market's built in a little too much in the way of Fed easing in the near term and a little too much on the downturn that everyone expecting to come the reality and i, I just bring up caterpillar because i just interviewed the uh, darren LaHood, the congressman from peoria illinois kathy a caterpillar piece out nine years with a big fat coupon is trading at 128 way over premium way out there to yield 3.1 percent i mean even you know, in the old days of the S&P bond ledger, you know, Pim Fox would bring it in for him and I to look at. How do you do this in corporate bonds right now with those low yields? Yeah, that's the trouble. The spreads uh, are so tight yeah. um, and so far below average. So what does someone do at Schwab? Yield. I mean, what, what are you buying fixed income given price up? Yeah, well, we're, you know, we're staying, actually, we're suggesting barbells, some short-term paper and some longer-term paper up in credit quality. We actually like municipal bonds because the, the yield curve is actually normally sloped in the municipal So market. you're willing to say for a taxable investor own munis? Uh, it just depends on your tax bracket. It could make sense. 
um, and particularly yeah. in in a higher tax state, it may actually make sense over, yeah, okay. uh, over corporates or treasuries. Yeah. I mean, uh, Kathy Jones, thank you so much. With Schwab. Off Hormuz, Hong Kong protests, the yield, the world's coming to an end. None of it matters. There is only one story today, particularly among the youth of America and the youth of Wall Street, and that is <laughs> the you are with child, and how many weeks do you get off? And of course, I come with this with the ancient view of you were like back to work in two days. Rebecca Greenfield and a guy named Max Abelson write <laughs> the read on Wall Street today. Wall Street dads find parental leave easier to get than to take. Max, you hit the ball out of the park. This is so, so true. I'm given X days or X weeks and I'm glued to the phone at home. Well, your listeners know that you're very hard to impress. So I'm really glad you feel that way. What do you do? Don't give me that, Rebecca. <laughs> let me talk to you. Do you, do you are you of child? Do you, do you, no, do I you, don't. I don't, don't have children. This is a huge deal. I mean, yeah, we're getting there with deal. women. Dads, I think it's really cool. They take X amount of weeks off, but there's massive guilt the whole way. Is Jamie Dimon upset that somebody at J.P. Morgan is off for X number of weeks? I don't think he would say that. I think the banks are happy to be offering more and more time to people. Um, they offer, they keep upping the amount of leaves that they are offering. Um, they offer up to 16 weeks for primary caregivers and then a varying okay. amount of time for secondary caregivers. But what we're finding that, is that's that- That's too long. They're, by that time, they're ready for SAT prep. <laughs> I, I disagree. I don't know about your kids. <laughs> yeah. Tom, evidently you've got some precocious little ones. Um, I, I think a lot of dads want to be home for that amount of time. And, and I think a lot of moms would appreciate them being home for Let's that. Let's bring in Lisa Bramos. Lisa? Well, okay, Max, I, I have to ask, is this, are, are people finding it difficult to take this time off because their bosses are telling them that they can't or because they feel guilty and they feel like their careers are going to suffer and they have not adjusted yet to the mindset of taking off weeks at a time in order to change diapers? I think guilt and fear definitely play a role. And we didn't talk to anyone who said, Lisa, that there was an overt message from a boss being like, you know, Tom, do not take this leave. It, it was a little bit more ephemeral and the signals were more subtle. So, for example, we talked to this guy named Kay High, who was, a, he was an MD at BlackRock, who talked about these nudges and winks. You know, hey, will we be able to reach you while you're gone? And it's that kind of thing that gave him the feeling like, oh, you know, what, what could possibly be so interesting that you would want to leave here for, you know, 10 days? I think he said something like, you know, you're, you're not the mother. Well, so I guess that, Rebecca, you're not the mother. And yet I'm, I'm, I'd really be curious to know how many women who go out maternity leave are still fielding phone calls and emails from work and don't fully disconnect as well. I mean, in other words, how many women don't fully take off their leave also? I think there are certainly people who take time off and still are connected to work. I think the difference between men and women is that it is sometimes physically a lot harder for a woman if she's given birth to walk into the office the next day. And in a culture that really values that, um, it's going to be easier for men to do that. And so men do that. They, do, they can go back it, to work. Max Abelson, in your vast research, 
did you find there women at home taking off X number of weeks? Everybody loves it, great, great, great. Where they're basically saying to the dad, after one week or two weeks, here's the door, what's your hurry, go back to work? It was more like talking to guys who said, when I asked them about parental leave, and I said, you know, I'm Max Abelson yeah. from Bloomberg News, <laughs> about parental leave. I got emails back being like, what paternity leave? What are you even talking about? One executive told me that he didn't know a guy who took a paternity leave longer than a week at all. Yeah. And you joked about people coming back to work two, two days later, and, and Becca just talked about uh, how physically difficult it is for women to bounce back. I spoke to a guy who was a trader at J.P. Morgan. He literally came back to work that day. His daughter was born. He was back trading I, I've that never, afternoon. Full disclosure, Lisa, I've never done that. I, I didn't go back... <laughs> You get the, a cold the, the star. Day. I, I, I also just want to point out. <laughs> I want to point out that technically these banks offer four months off to all parents, and then, you know, between two weeks and six weeks off to other yeah. parents. So some dads can, if they want, they are allowed to take well, four months. Lisa, weigh in here on this because you're facing this every day. I mean, there's offspring Abramowitz is well. And, you know, it, it, it is a changed society. I talked to a senior officer of Bloomberg about this at length uh, the other day, Lisa, and it's almost like the companies are out front of the employees. Do you sense that, Lisa? Yes, I think that that is, I think that that's really fair. In other words, how much are people in the mindset <clears throat> men in particular to take that time off and be at home uh, especially because it's actually kind of grunt work at the very beginning people don't really talk about this but the baby doesn't do all that much at the very beginning it really is changing the diapers doing doctor's visits getting um, acclimatized to the idea that you're not going to be sleeping all that much but Rebecca I guess that I'm curious going forward what companies are doing to try to foster more of a culture of taking this time off I mean has there been any discussion about perhaps having flex time not necessarily taking it all at the beginning uh, in sort of a, a three-month chunk, but basically bleeding it out over time with being able to take days to take the kid to the to the doctor or fill in after the wife goes back to work. Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, one thing companies can do is just offer the same amount of time to all parents, not have these tiered systems where some people get two weeks and some people get 16 weeks. And then there are also companies allowing yeah. for more flexibility. So you don't have to take it all in the beginning. And like you said, you know, I think some people might think it's more right. helpful to have their partner there later, not oh, right you're away. killing me. Can I take flex time with a 12-year-old so I can go <laughs> wait in line at Glossier for four hours? No. To get in? Thank you, Max. No is the, the right answer. I need to switch <laughs> gears. When we've got Rebecca uh, uh, with us and Max, uh, we, we, we've got to switch gears here. Max, I need an update with you with all your Wall Street perspective on the future of Deutsche Bank New York. Oh, boy. Well, Deutsche Bank just can't seem to get out of its own way. I mean, what, I, what's the energy? I mean, Sonali Basak and you, you're on the street, you're knee-deep buried in this, give me the future Deutsche Bank, and then I got a question for Rebecca. Well, I gotta say, if you wanna know what's going on at Deutsche Bank, you talk to Sonali, not me, but let's just think about no, what's but come on, reported you're in on. the bars, you know, you, come on, you know the gossip, Max, what's Are you trying to get him in trouble? Yes, what's the gossip in New York? Tom Keenan has tried to get me in trouble many times. I'll just say this, my friend Kay Wiggins, one of my favorite Bloomberg colleagues in England, yeah. just reported in the last, I mean, this was like literally yesterday. Every day it feels like there's something new that seems like something right. from a Showtime show happening. Deutsche Bank apparently had these red flags that were going up about kickbacks. Yeah. And Deutsche Bank was just doing nothing. Down about in them. Florida. They did nothing doing nothing. That they, okay. they, they, they didn't worry. So, I mean, 
I think that the, if you, without getting in trouble, my right. honest second answer is you, if you pull up Bloomberg News on any given morning, you'll find out some sort of like bone rattling totally story about that. Rebecca, Rebecca, I got to go to you just because of time I'm running out. Rebecca Greenfield, you bleed the Atlantic. It is iconic magazine in America. What do you see in the magazine business right now? What's the 2020 of magazines in America? Of magazines? Um, I don't know that I'm... I'm qualified to talk about I that. I think you, you are because, you, you know, you did, you did the whole thing in digital at the Atlantic and all that. Yeah, I, I uh, what is, tw- I think, um, what's Tom's happening trying to get everyone in trouble today. I know. I, I think like- <laughs> there's a big conversation right now happening about who should be writing magazine cover stories um, mm. set off by the editor-in-chief of the Atlantic, Jeff Goldberg. Yeah. He, um, suggested that only there are more white male candidates qualified to write magazine stories. So I hope the future of magazines is a move away from that and more experimentation in who writes what very stories. Very cool. Rebecca Greenfield, very good on journalism and uh, uh, her work there. And Max Abelson on the Gossip of Wall Street. Combined today, Lisa Abramowitz. I love this headline. Wall Street dads find parental leave easier to get All right. than to take. So it is so... Inc- who wrote this headline? Tom- Max, Tom, did you write this? I think we got to give a shout out to, to Janet Paskin, our editor. She pulled out of the old it. hat. Lisa, what do you All think? Right. Tom, I think it's great. You know, because you're putting everyone on the spot. What's your view on vlogs? Because you have um, <laughs> you have you have a daughter. Yeah, I'm not I'm not happy about it. We're, this is a massive debate at home. I mean, it's, so, it's, it's like massive. Like you pro know, or con? It's allowed. We're your like digitally to diminishing at the Keen household. We're dimin- digitally. diminishing as best as we can. I feel like, what is this? I feel like I'm on The View right now with Max and Rebecca. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.